Section 16 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 2, Jewish Heroes and Prophets by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Isaiah, Part 1. Prophesied 740 to 741 B.C. National Degeneracy. To understand the mission of Isaiah, one should be familiar with the history of the kingdom of Judah from the time of Jeroboam, founder of the separate kingdom of Israel, to that of Uzziah, in whose reign Isaiah was born, 760 B.C. Judah had doubtless degenerated in virtue and spiritual life, but this degeneracy was not so marked as that of the northern kingdom, called Israel. Judah had been favored by a succession of kings, most of whom were able and good men. Out of nine kings, five of them did right in the sight of the Lord, and during the two hundred and sixteen years when these monarchs reigned, one hundred and eighty-seven were years when the worship of Jehovah was maintained by virtuous princes, all of whom were of the house of David. The reigns of those kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord were short. During this period there were nineteen kings of Israel, most of whom did evil. They introduced idolatry. Many of them were usurpers, and died violent deaths. If the northern kingdom was larger and more fertile than the southern, it was more afflicted with disastrous wars and divine judgments for the sins into which it had fallen. It was to the wicked kings of Israel, throned in the Sumerian Shechem, that Elijah and Elisha were sent, and the interest we feel in their reigns is chiefly directed to the acts and sayings of those two great prophets. The kingdom of Judah, blessed on the whole with virtuous rulers, and comparatively free from idolatry, continually increased in wealth and political power. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, after the rebellion of the ten tribes, seems to have changed somewhat his course of life, although the high places and graven images were not removed. But his grandson Asa destroyed the idols and made fortunate alliances. Asa's son Jehoshaphat terminated the civil wars that had raged between Judah and Israel from the accession of Rehoboam, and almost rivaled Solomon in his outward prosperity. Jerusalem became the strongest fortress in western Asia. The temple service was continued in its former splendor. All that was vital in the strength of nations pertained to the smaller kingdom. The dark spot in the history of Judah for nearly two hundred years was the ascendancy gained by Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel, over her husband Jehoram, who introduced the gods of Phoenicia. She seems to have exercised the same malign influence in Jerusalem that Jezebel did in Samaria, and was as unscrupulous as her pagan mother. She even succeeded in usurping the throne, and in destroying the whole race of David, with the exception of Joash, an infant, whom Jehoiada the high priest contrived to hide until the unscrupulous Athaliah was slain, having reigned as queen six years the first instance in Jewish history of a female sovereign. Both Judah and Israel in these years had the danger of a Syrian war constantly threatening them. Under Haziel, who reigned at Damascus, great conquests were made by the Syrians of Jewish territory, and the capture of Jerusalem was averted only by buying off the enemy, to whom were surrendered the gifts of the temple accumulating since the days of Jehoshaphat. The whole land was overrun and pillaged nor were calamities confined to the miseries of war. A long drought burned the field, seed rotted under the clods, the cattle moaned in the barren and dried-up pastures, while locusts devoured what the drought had spared. Says Stanley, The purple vine, the green fig tree, the gray olive, the scarlet pomegranate, the golden corn, 
the waving palm the fragrant citron vanished before them and the trunks and branches were left bare and white by their devouring teeth a brilliant sentence by the way which geike quotes without acknowledgment as well as many others which lays him open to the charge of plagiarism both stanley and geike however seem to be indebted to ewald for all that is striking and original in their histories so true is solomon saying that there is nothing new under the sun the rarest thing in literature is a truly original history in this mournful crisis the prophet joel who was a priest at jerusalem demanded a solemn fast which the entire kingdom devoutly celebrated the whole body of the priests crying aloud before the gates of the temple spare thy people o lord give not thine heritage to reproach lest the heathen make us a byword and ask where is now thy god but joel the oldest and in many respects the most eloquent hebrew prophet whose utterances have come down to us did not speak in vain and a great religious revival followed attended naturally by renewed prosperity for among jews a revival of religion meant a practical return from vice to virtue personal holiness and the just and wholesome requirements of their law so that under amaziah uzziah and jotham judah rose once more to a pitch of honor and glory which almost recalled the golden age of david a greater power than that of syria threatened the peace and welfare of the kingdom of judah as it also did that of israel and this was the empire of assyria during the reigns of david and solomon this empire was passing through so many disasters that it was not regarded as dangerous and both of the jewish kingdoms were left free to avail themselves of every facility afforded for national development ewald notices emphatically this outward prosperity which introduced luxury and pride throughout the kingdom it was the golden age of merchants usurers and money-mongers then appeared that extraordinary greed for riches which never afterward left the nation even in seasons of calamity and which is the most striking peculiarity of the modern hebrew this was a period not only of prosperity and luxury but of vanity and ostentation especially among women the insidious influences of wealth more than balanced the good affected by a long succession of virtuous and gifted princes I read of no country that on the whole was ever favored by a more remarkable constellation of absolute kings than that of judah most of them had long reigns took prophets and wise men for their counselors developed the resources of their kingdoms strengthened jerusalem avoided entangling wars and enjoyed the love and veneration of the people most of them unlike the kings of israel were true to their exalted mission were loyal to jehovah and discouraged idolatry if they did not root out the scandal by persecuting violence some of these kings were poets and others were saints like their great ancestor david and yet in spite of all their efforts corruption and infidelity gained ground and ultimately undermined the state and prepared the way for babylonian conquests though jerusalem survived the fall of samaria for nearly five generations divine judgment was delayed but not withdrawn the chastisement was sent at last at the hands of warriors whom no nation could successfully resist the old enemies who had in the early days overwhelmed the hebrews with calamities under the judges had been conquered by saul and david the moabites the edomites the hittites the jebusites and the philistines and they never afterward seriously menaced the kingdom although there were occasional wars but in the eighth century before christ the assyrian empire whose capital was nineveh had become very formidable under warlike sovereigns who aimed to extend their dominion to the mediterranean and to egypt in the reign of jehoash the son of athaliah an assyrian monarch had exacted tribute from tyre and sidon and syria was overrun when pole or tiglath pileser 
seized the throne of Nineveh, he pushed his conquests to the Caspian Sea on the north, and the Indus on the east, to the frontier of Egypt and the deserts of Sinai on the west and south. In 739 BC he appeared in Syria to break up a confederation which Uzziah of Judah had formed to resist him, and succeeded in destroying the power of Syria, and carrying its people as captives to Assyria. Menahem, king of Samaria, submitted to the enormous tribute of one thousand talents of silver. In 733 BC this great conqueror again invaded Syria, beheaded Rezin its king, took Damascus, reduced five hundred and eighteen cities and towns to ashes, and carried back to Nineveh an immense spoil. In 728 BC Shalmaneser IV appeared in Palestine and invested Samaria. The city made an heroic defense, but after a siege of three years it yielded to Sargon, who carried away into captivity the ten tribes of Israel, from which they never returned. Judah survived by reason of its greater military skill and its strong fortresses, with which Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Uzziah had fortified the country, especially Jerusalem. But the fate of western Asia was sealed when Rezin of Damascus, Menahem of Samaria, Hiram of Tyre, and the king of Hamath, mutually consented to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. The downfall of the sturdy Judah was in preparation. Greater evils than those of war threatened the stability of the state. In Judah, as in Ephraim, drunkenness was a national vice, and the nobles abandoned themselves to disgraceful debauchery. There was a general demoralization of the people more fearful in its consequences than even idolatry. Judah was no exception to the ordinary fate of nations. The everlasting sequence, pertaining to institutions as well as nations, to religious as well as merely political communities, was here seen. Inwardness, outwardness, worldliness, and rottenness. It was in this state of political danger and a general decline in morals, with a tendency to idolatry, that Isaiah, preacher, statesman, historian, poet, and prophet, was born. Less is said of the personal history of this great man than of Moses or David, of Daniel or Elisha, and it is only in his writings that we see the solemn grandeur of his character. We infer that he was allied with the royal family of David. He certainly held a high position in the courts of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He was a man of great dignity, experience, and wisdom, but ascetic in his habits and dress. Although he associated with the great courts and palaces, a cell was his delight. He was a retiring, contemplative, rapt, austere man, severe on passing follies, and not sparing in his rebukes of sin in high places. Something like Savonarola in Florence, both as preacher and prophet, and exercising a commanding influence on political affairs and on the other people directly, especially during the reigns of Ahaz and Hezekiah. He denounced woes and calamities, yet escaped persecution from the grandeur of his character and the importance of his utterances. He was a favorite of King Hezekiah, and was contemporary with the prophets Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. He lived in Jerusalem, not far from the temple, and had a wife and two sons. He wrote the life of Uzziah, and died at the age of eighty-four, in the reign of Manasseh. It is generally supposed that although Isaiah had lived in honor during the reigns of four kings, he suffered martyrdom at last. It is a fate of the prophets to be stoned when they are in antagonism with men in power, or with popular sentiments. His prophetic ministry extended over a period of about fifty years, and he was continually consulted by the reigning monarchs. The great outward events that took place during Isaiah's public career were the invasion of Judah by the combined forces of Israel and Syria in the reign of Ahaz, and the great Assyrian invasion in the reign of Hezekiah. In regard to the first, it was disastrous to Judah. 
the weak king the twelfth from david was inclined to the idolatries of the surrounding nations but was not signally bad like ahab yet he was no match for pekah who reigned at samaria or for rezin who reigned at damascus their combined armies slew in one day one hundred and twenty thousand of the subjects of ahaz and carried away into captivity two hundred thousand women and children with immense spoil the conqueror then advanced to the siege of jerusalem in his distress ahaz invoked the aid of pol or tilgath pilsalar the second one of the most warlike of the assyrian kings whose kingdom stretched from the armenian mountains on the north to baghdad on the south and from the zagros chain on the east to the euphrates on the west earnestly did the prophet statesman expostulate with ahaz telling him that the king of assyria would prove a razor to shave but too clean his desolate land the inspired advice was rejected and the result of the alliance was that judah like israel fell to the rank of a subject nation and became tributary to assyria and Ahaz a mere vassal of Tilglath Pileser. The whole of Palestine became the borderland of the Assyrian Empire, easy to be invaded and liable to be conquered. The consequences which Isaiah feared took place in the time of Hezekiah, in the actual invasion of Judah by the Assyrian hosts under Sennacherib. Not the splendid prosperity of Hezekiah, little short of that enjoyed by Solomon, not his allegiance to jehovah nor his grand reforms and magnificent feasts averted the calamities which were the legitimate result of the blindness of his father ahaz sennacherib the most powerful of all the assyrian kings after suppressing a revolt in babylon and conquering various eastern states turned his eyes and steps to palestine which had revolted hezekiah in mortal fear made humble submission and consented to a tribute of three hundred talents of silver and thirty of gold and the loss of two hundred thousand of his people as captives and a cession of a part of his territory as great a calamity as france suffered in the war eighteen seventy to seventy one with prussia considering the prosperity of the kingdom of judah under hezekiah it is a difficult thing to be explained that the king could raise but three hundred talents of silver and thirty of gold although david had contributed out of his private fortune for the future erection of the temple three thousand talents of gold and seven thousand talents of silver besides the one million talents of silver and the one hundred thousand talents of gold which he collected as a sovereign it would seem probable that an error has crept into the estimates of the wealth of the kingdom under solomon and under the subsequent kings either that of solomon is exaggerated or that of hezekiah is underrated notwithstanding his former defeat and losses hezekiah again revolted and again judah was invaded by a still greater assyrian force the king of judah in this emergency showed extraordinary energy stopped the supply of water outside his capital strengthened his defenses gathered together his fighting men and encouraged them with the assurance that help would come from the lord in whom they trusted and whom sennacherib boastfully defied for the ringing words of isaiah roused and animated the hearts of both king and people to a noble courage announcing the aid of jehovah and the overthrow of the heathen invader as we have seen the men of judah showed their faith in the divine help by preparing to help themselves but from an unexpected quarter the assistance came as isaiah had predicted a pestilence destroyed in a single night one hundred and eighty-five thousand of the assyrian warriors the most signal overthrow of the enemies of israel since pharaoh and his host were swallowed up by the waters of the red sea and also the most signal deliverance which jerusalem ever had the calamity created such a fearful demoralization among the invaders that the overconfident assyrian monarch retired to his capital with utter loss of prestige and soon after was assassinated by his own sons no assyrian king after this invaded judah and Nineveh itself in a few years was conquered by Babylon. The fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians was delayed one hundred years, 
but such were the moral and social evils of the times succeeding the ninevite evasion that isaiah saw that retribution would come sooner or later unless the nation repented and a radical reform should take place he saw the people stricken with judicial blindness so he clothed himself in sackcloth and cried aloud with fervid eloquence upon the people to repent he is now the popular preacher and his theme is repentance in his earnest exhortations he foreshadows john the baptist unless ye repent ye shall all likewise perish it would seem that savonarola makes him the model of his own eloquence thy crimes o florence thy crimes o rome thy crimes o italy are the causes of these chastisements o rome thou shalt be put to the sword since thou wilt not be converted o harlot church i will stretch forth mine hand upon thee saith the lord the burden of the soul of the florentine monk is sin especially sin in high places he sees only degeneracy in life and alarms the people by threats of divine vengeance so isaiah cries aloud upon the people to seek the lord while he may be found he does not invoke divine wrath as david did upon his enemies but he shows that this wrath will surely overtake the sinner in no respect does he glory in this retribution he is sad he is oppressed he is filled with grief especially in view of the prevailing infatuation my people said he do not consider he denounces all classes alike and spares not even women in sarcastic language he rebukes their love of dress their abandonment to vanities their finery their very gait and mincing attitude still more contemptuously does the preacher speak of the men over whom the women rule and children oppress he is severe on corrupt judges on usurers on all who are conceited in their own eyes on those who are mighty to drink wine on those who join house to house and field to field on those whose glorious beauty is a fading flower on those who call good evil and evil good that put darkness for light that take away the righteousness of the righteous from him his terrible denunciation and enumeration of evil indicate a very lax morality in every quarter added to hypocrisy and pharisaism he shows what a poor thing is sacrifice unaccompanied with virtue to what purpose says he is the multitude of sacrifices bring no more vain oblations incense is an abomination to me saith the lord therefore wash you make you clean put away the evil of your doings cease to do evil learn to do well seek judgment relieve the oppressed judge the fatherless plead for the widow isaiah does not preach dogmas still less metaphysical distinctions he preaches against sin and demands repentance and predicts calamity there are two points in his preaching which stand out with great vividness the certain judgments of god in view of sin retribution on all offenders and secondly the mercy and forgiveness of god in case of repentance retribution however is not in isaiah usually presented as the penalty of transgression according to natural law not as in the proverbs as the inevitable sequence of sin whatsoever ye sow that shall ye also reap but as direct punishment from god jehovah's awful personality is everywhere recognized a being who rules the universe as the living god who loves and abhors who punishes and rewards who gives power to the faint who judges among the nations who takes away from judah and jerusalem the stay and the staff of bread and water to whom then will ye liken to god have ye not known have ye not heard hath it not been told you from the beginning it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain that bringeth the princes to nothing hast thou not known hast thou not heard that the everlasting god the lord the creator of the ends of the earth fainteth not neither is weary he giveth power to the faint and weary so that they who wait upon him shall renew their strength mount up with wings as eagles 
run and not be weary walk and not faint can stronger or more comforting language be made use of to assert the personality and providence of god and where in the whole circuit of hebrew poetry is there more sublimity of language greater eloquence or more profound conviction of the evil and punishment of sin isaiah the greatest of all the prophets in his spiritual discernment in his profound insight of the future is not behind the author job in majestic and sublime description whatever may be the severity of the language with which isaiah denounces sin and awful the judgments he pronounces in view of it as coming directly from god yet he seldom closes one of his dreadful sentences without holding out the hope of divine forgiveness in case of repentance and the peace and comfort which will follow in his view the mercy of the lord is more impressive than his judgments isaiah is anything but a prophet of wrath his soul overflows with tender sentiments and loving exhortation ho every one that thirsteth come to the waters come ye buy and eat yea come buy wine and milk without money and without price let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon behold the lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear though your sins be as scarlet they shall be white as snow though they be red like crimson they shall be as wool according to modern standards we are struck with the absence of what we call art in the writings of isaiah history woes promises hopes aspirations and exultations are all mingled together in scarcely logical sequence he exhorts he threatens he reproaches he promises often in the same chapter the transition between preacher and prophet is very sudden but it is as prophet that isaiah is most frequently spoken of and he is the prophet of hope and consolation although he denounces the woes upon the nations of the earth in his prophetic office he predicts the future of all the people known to the hebrews he does not preach to them they do not hear his voice they do not know what tribulation shall be sent upon them he commits his prophecies to writing for the benefit of future ages in which he gives reasons for the judgments to be sent upon wicked nations so that the great principles seen in the moral government of god may remain of perpetual significance these principles center around the great truth that national wickedness will certainly be followed by national calamities which is also one of the most impressive truths that all history teaches and so uniform is the operation of this great law that it is safe to make deductions from it for the guidance of statesmen and the teachings of moralists national effeminacy which follows luxury great injustices which cry to heaven for vengeance and practical atheism and idolatry are certain to call forth divine judgments sometimes in the form of destructive wars sometimes in pestilence and famine and at other times in the gradual wasting away of national resources and political power in conformity with this settled law and the moral government of god we read the fate of nineveh of babylon of tyre of jerusalem of carthage of antioch of corinth of athens of rome and i would even add of venice of turkey of spain nor is there anything which can save modern cities and countries however magnificent their civilization from a like visitation of almighty power if they continue in the iniquity which all the world perceives and sometimes deplores it must have seemed as absurd to the readers of isaiah's predictions twenty five hundred years ago that babylon and tyre should fall as it would to the people of our day should one predict the future ruin of paris or london or new york if the vices which now flourish in these cities should reach an overwhelming preponderance but which we hope may be wholly overcome by the influence of christianity and the spirit and interference of god himself 
for he governs the world by the same principles that he did two thousand years ago a fact which seldom is ignored by any profound and religious inquirer i have no faith in the permanence of any form of civilization or of any government where a certain depth of infamy and depravity is reached because the impressive lesson of history is that righteousness exalteth a nation and iniquity brings it low isaiah predicted woes which came to pass since the cities and peoples against whom he denounced them remained obstinately perverse in their iniquity and atheism their doom was certain without that repentance which would lead to a radical change of life and opinions he held out no hope unless they turned to the lord nor did any of the prophets jeremiah was sad because he knew they would not repent even as christ himself wept over jerusalem no maledictions came from the pen or voice of isaiah such as david breathed against his enemies only the expression of the sad and solemn conviction that unless the people and the nation repented they would all equally and surely perish in accordance with the stern laws written on the two tables of moses for i thy god am a jealous god visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children even to the third and fourth generations yea written before moses and to be read unto this day in the very constitution of man physical mental spiritual and social the prophet first announces the calamities which both judah and ephraim the southern and the northern kingdoms shall suffer from assyrian invasions the lord shall shave judah with a razor not only the head but the beard thus declaring that the land would be not only depopulated but become a desert and that men should no longer live by agriculture or by trade and commerce but by grazing alone woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of ephraim whose glorious beauty is a fading flower it shall be trodden under foot the sins of pride and drunkenness are especially enumerated as the cause of their chastisement woe to ariel that is jerusalem I will camp against thee round about and lay siege against thee with a mount and i will raise forts against thee and thou shalt be brought down forasmuch as this people draw near me with their mouth and with lips do they honor me but have removed their hearts far from me hereby showing that hypocrisy at jerusalem was as prevalent as drunkenness in samaria and as difficult to be removed end of section sixteen